Hey there, Kenfo. This is Uncle Maduro. Look, if y'all been enjoying these little pie talks here I'll be giving, then won't y'all consider buying old Uncle Maduro a cigar? You can go right there to my little wave page there and donate. Donate to Uncle Maduro just for the price of one cigar. And man, let me tell you, I keep on doing these little talks here that I be giving. So now that I've done harassing y'all like a cigar at the beach, let's get back to the talk. All right now. How y'all doing there? Sure would like to thank y'all for stopping by to have a cigar with Uncle Maduro. Man, look at here. Now y'all know before we get off into what I'm going to talk about tonight here, I got to tell y'all what I'm smoking on. And tonight, I'm smoking on Illusiana MJ-12. Man, look at here. This is a goosey. You know, I was watching a football game with the fellas at the cigar spot Saturday night. Went to the Raj Humidor. I said, you know what? I need me something that I ain't smoked in a while. Matter of fact, need me something from Illusiana that I ain't smoked at all. So I picked up this MJ-12. And man, let me tell you something. Illusiana has never disappointed me at all when it comes to their little sticks. Now, I'm not no high-powered, full-body cigar smoker. Matter of fact, the other night, I was uh, in my garage, and I was it had, had, had the garage door open sitting out there, and uh, I just wanted just to get me a quick little smoke. So I went into my little humidor, and I got me one of these My Father, one, one of these little nubs from My Father. You know, it was a Maduro, and I said to myself, I said, well, you know, this is a little something, it'll be at least something quick, you know, a little short, something quick, you know, just, you know, just give me a little cigars in me. And I sat down there, and let me tell you, man, that, that My Father... I can't think of what the name of it is right now, but that little my father knocked me on my tail. Man, I got up, man. I went there, man. I got me some peppermint, man. Got me a little peppermint stick, man. Sucked on that for a minute. Sat down in my lounge, lounge chair. And when I woke up, it was by the sound of my tail, my cell phone. Yeah, my buddy Tim, old Tim Dog. He was calling me. And that old thing woke me up. And it was like I lost space and time. That little my father knocked me on my tail, but that thing was so good. But I underestimated it because that little short little job, it was full body. And that just goes to show you, just because some may be short, don't mean it ain't powerful. But that was a good stick. But tonight, I'm really, really enjoying this uh, this uh, Illusiano MJ-12. Like I say, I had it uh, Saturday or Sunday night when I was watching a football game. You know, them New England, I mean, I keep saying New England Patriots because Tom Brady but them Tampa Bay Buccaneers, man, they, they took it all. Now, I ain't no Tampa Bay Buccaneers fan, me personally, but, you know, I like that uh, Tom Brady because, you know, he's from the University of Michigan, and I'm a Michigan man. So that's the only reason why I was pulling for Tom Brady. And uh, it was all right, though, but I was pulling for Tom Brady, but I had my money on Kansas City. <laughs> well, I'm a little two-faced, but when it comes to money, hey, you never can be too sure, all right? But look at here. This, I'm going to tell you something. This Illusiana MJ-12 is a good stick. And what I like about Illusiana is that, you know, they don't make no real, really, well, I haven't had yet no really full body, you know, knock you on your tail cigar. You know, these are some good quality cigars with a lot of nuances in them. And I can, I'm getting to the point where I can take some of the nuances when the cigar changes. And I'm really, really, really enjoying this stick here. Now, usually I tell y'all what these folks say about it, but I ain't doing that no more. 
I'm not good. I'm just gonna tell y'all what I think about it because I don't know nothing about no cigars, and we all gonna learn this game together. But this is Louisiana, y'all. You ever get a chance to go to your local cigar spot first? But see if they got this in Louisiana MJ12, and see what you think about it for yourself. If you can't find your local cigar spot, then you go online to your CIs or your host or somebody like that, and you get some to fill up your humidor. But always shop local first. Me myself, I shop at Roz right here in our little town here. Woo, man, good cigar spot. All right, but look at it tonight. What I want to bring to y'all tonight here, I'm kind of gonna change the format of the little pie talk here. Usually at the end, I you know get one of my little long little rants or what like that. I'm not gonna do that no more. You know, because I got to thinking about it. It's almost like talking to somebody when they when they giving you their point of view about something. When you you giving somebody your point of view about something, and they and they agree with you, and they say yeah, but, and they say something else. Well, that but when that when you hear that but, that all that 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 means that they gonna say something. They really don't agree with everything that you say. That they going on a total different direction. That they ain't hear nothing you said. You know, it's like, you know, I talked to the guy the other day, man, well, get my little point of view about something. He said, yeah, man, you know, you're right. But, and then he go off on his little thing. So whenever I hear that but word, I always know that this fool ain't hear nothing I said. Or if I say that to somebody, it means that I ain't hear nothing that they said. Because we always want to get our points out. We don't want to listen to somebody else, you know, see what their point of it is and then think about it a little bit. You know, we always want that bat that battle back and forth. And that butt always comes into it, you know. But what I'm looking at here is, uh, and I just said butt too. <laughs> what I'm looking at here, I want to stop doing that. I want to stop giving my little long little rants because I want to present things to y'all that I be thinking about through the week. Or maybe I had a conversation with my little folks about something. And I want y'all to think about it because I go out and do my little research. And I never try. I, when, when I do my little research, I never try to find anything with contra, uh, what they call that confirmation bias. Stuff that agree with what you agree with. I don't like that. I always look like listening to information contrary to what I thought because I cannot change my mind. If I cannot, uh, I cannot take in new information. If I'm always listening to stuff and around people that agree with me, that's why I don't like talking to people that agree with me about everything because I'm not learning anything. You know, they say iron sharpens fire, iron sharpens iron. You know, they say iron sharpens iron, but it takes fire. See what I'm saying? It takes fire. But iron sharpens iron. Because you don't get iron without fire. So. I always thought about that too. People say, well, iron shop and iron. I be thinking about saying iron shop and iron. That means iron and iron, they agree with each other. They the same thing. Okay, yeah, they can shop each other, but what you what you, you know what it takes to make iron? It takes fire. And that, that fire to me is contrasting information to strengthen that iron by iron to sharpen each other. So you I mean that's like that's like me trying to pass the information about some learned about something, and then I go back to my fellow man, and I talk to him about it, I share it with him, I open his perspective, because he's been thinking something all wrong all this time, and that kind of brings me what I'm going to talk about here tonight, like I say, at the end, I'm not going on no big rant, I just want y'all to marinate on the little talk that we didn't have, okay, but tonight, what we're going to talk about is, uh, we're going to take a look at the war on drugs, now, the reason why I'm looking at this war on drugs because sometimes I get into conversations or I get into listening 
with folks who always want to give their perspective, who always want to give their perspective on why the black community is in the shape that it's in. Like one of the big part talking points you always hear people say is that, you know, the black community is in the shape that it is because there's no fathers in the home. And that's and that's partially and that, that well, that's correct. They say that the black community is all messed up because you got babies raising babies and you got grandmamas before good 25 years old, she a grandmama. Well, that's partially correct too. The black community is in, in conjunction and way to knock her. Black folks don't want to work on they do want to sell drugs and have their pants hanging down off of them. Well, that's partly too true too. Look at these black kids. They run around there with their pants hanging down, drawers off their tail. Where they get that from? Well, that's partially true too. Look at, look at them. Look at them. They ride around in them cars with them wheels all jacked up, costing all that money. Look at them. Well, that's partially true too. Look at them. Got all that old stuff all in their mouth, all them golds and jewelries and all that money. They don't know how to spend their money. They don't know how to invest with their money. Well, that's partially true too. But the big thing about it that I look at is when folks say, uh, you know, ain't no daddies in the home, you know, like, you know, like black folks is dysfunctional. And that's true. But when you look at things is you got to get down to the brass and taxes and see, well, why is it like that? Everybody want to tell you about why the black community is in the shape that it's in, but nobody want to talk about how we got into this shape. So tonight what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at how the black community got into this shape. Okay? How the black father got taken out the home and put in the penitentiaries. And now you got generation of kids, right, who, who grew up with fathers in penitentiary doing the same thing that their father did in penitentiary doing. Sometimes some of them going up to penitentiary being up there with their father because of what? Because of the cycle. The cycle that was created. See, cycles has to get be created like welfare. People talk about welfare. They want to make like welfare is a black thing. Like all these black people on welfare associates. But there's more Jews on welfare than blacks. There's more white people on welfare than blacks. But yet blacks are the ones get stigmatized with being welfare babies and generation babies and welfare mamas. And all this came from Ronald Reagan. <laughs> and a whole lot of things came from Ronald Reagan as y'all going to hear. So tonight, if there's ever information that come along that make you change your mind and make you change your talking point when you talk to other folks about, then you need to learn here tonight here. Because I'm going to tell you why or show you why and how the black father got taken out the home and how we get these drug infested communities and pay close attention to who started it. So what I'm going to do right now, I'm going to kick back with my MJ-12, Luciano, and I want y'all to take a listen to this. And I'm going to be bringing you more information on this series because, you know, if any white folks out there, I want y'all to take a listen to this and I want y'all to understand why the black community is in the shape that it's in. Why the young black kids are so angry. Why are so many single black women out here raising kids? Why the, the education is the way it is right here in the United States. Like right now, you got kids been out of school for a whole year and they won't open the schools back up. 
in California, in Chicago. They won't open the schools back up a whole year. Just imagine, you got a whole year with kids not being socialized in an environment where they can learn, being isolated at home. And some of them that's not in the home, they're going out to home and they're forming gangs. They get with other groups on the street because they got too much time on their hands for ignorance or being on that Facebook and them internets and YouTube, learn all that old ignorant stuff. You're going to see the reason why. So just imagine if you take kids out of school for a whole year and see what happens to them when they how be desensitized they are when they go back. Imagine if you take a father out of a home for 20, 30 years. Imagine if you take drugs out of a community and just lead poison, dope in the community. And watch the rats fight over the dope and sell the dope to each other. You're going to see who started all this. I'm going to bring you more talk, more information on this also. I guess we can say this is part one to my introduction to war on drugs. So y'all take a listen to this. And again, I'm going to step back with my MJ Twitter Luciano. And, and y'all take me a few bucks and come back and get with y'all on the flip side. All right now. Now, let's take a look at the crack epidemic. The crack epidemic in the United States was a surge of crack cocaine use in major cities across the United States between the early 1980s and the early 1990s. This resulted in a number of social consequences such as increasing crime and violence in American inner-city neighborhoods, as well as a resulting backlash in the form of tough-on-crime policies. History The name crack first appeared in the New York Times on November 17, 1985. Within a year more than a thousand press stories had been released about the drug. In the early 1980s, the majority of cocaine being shipped to the United States was landing in Miami, and originated in Colombia, trafficked through the Bahamas and Dominican Republic. Soon there was a huge glut of cocaine powder in these islands, which caused the price to drop by as much as 80%. Faced with dropping prices for their illegal product, drug dealers made a decision to convert the powder to crack, a solid smokable form of cocaine, that could be sold in smaller quantities, to more people. It was cheap, simple to produce, ready to use, and highly profitable for dealers to develop. As early as 1981, Reports of crack were appearing in Los Angeles, Oakland, San Diego, Miami, Houston, New York, and in the Caribbean. Initially, crack had higher purity than street powder. Around 1984, powder cocaine was available on the street at an average of 55% purity for $100 per gram, equivalent to $246 in 2019, and crack was sold at average purity levels of 80 plus percent for the same price. In some major cities, such as New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Philadelphia, Baltimore, Houston, and Detroit. One dose of crack could be obtained for as little as $2.50, equivalent to $6 in 2019. According to the 1985-1986 National Narcotics Intelligence Consumers Committee report, crack was available in Atlanta, Boston, Detroit, Kansas City, Miami, New York City, Newark, San Francisco, Seattle, St. Louis, Dallas, Denver, Minneapolis, and Phoenix. In 1985, cocaine-related hospital emergencies rose by 12%, from 23,500 to 26,300. In 1986, these incidents increased 110%, from 26,300 to 55,200. Between 1984 and 1987, 
cocaine incidents increased to 94,000. By 1987, crack was reported to be available in the District of Columbia and all but four states in the United States. Some scholars have cited the crack epidemic as an example of a moral panic, noting that the explosion in use and trafficking of the drug actually occurred after the media coverage of the drug as an epidemic. Later, the epidemic died down, as a new generation avoided the drug after seeing its effects on the previous generation. Impact by Region In a study done by Roland Fryer, Stephen Levitt, and Kevin Murphy, a crack index was calculated using information on cocaine-related arrests, deaths, and drug raids, along with low birth rates and media coverage in the United States. The crack index aimed to create a proxy for the percentage of cocaine-related incidents that involved crack. Crack was an almost unknown drug until 1985. This abrupt introductory date allows for the estimation and use of the index with the knowledge that values prior to 1985 are 0 This index showed that the Northeast U.S. was most affected by the crack epidemic. The U.S. cities with the highest crack index were New York, Newark, and Philadelphia. The same index used by Fryer, Levitt, and Murphy was then implemented in a study that investigated the effects of crack cocaine across the United States. In cities with populations over 350,000 the instances of crack cocaine were twice as high as those in cities with a population less than 350,000. These indicators show that the use of crack cocaine was much higher in urban areas. States and regions with concentrated urban populations were affected at a much higher rate, while states with primarily rural populations were least affected. Maryland, New York and New Mexico had the highest instances of crack cocaine use, while Idaho, Minnesota, and Vermont had the lowest instances of crack cocaine use. Effect on African American Communities Due to racial segregation and discriminatory practices by real estate agents, African American families were largely located in low-income inner-city neighborhoods. This led to crack impacting African American communities far more than others. Between 1984 and 1989, the homicide rate for black males aged 14 to 17 more than doubled, and the homicide rate for black males aged 18 to 24 increased nearly as much. During this period, the black community also experienced a 20 to 100 percent increase in fetal death rates, low birth weight babies, weapons arrests, and the number of children in foster care. The United States remains the largest overall consumer of narcotics in the world as of 2014. A 2018 study found that the crack epidemic had long-run consequences for crime, contributing to the doubling of the murder rate of young black males soon after the start of the epidemic, and that the murder rate was still 70% higher 17 years after crack's arrival. The paper estimated that 8% of the murders in 2000 are due to the long-run effects of the emergence of crack markets, and that the elevated murder rates for young black males can explain a significant part of the gap in life expectancy between black and white males. The reasons for these increases in crime were mostly because distribution of the drug to the end user occurred mainly in low-income inner-city neighborhoods. This gave many inner-city residents the opportunity to move up the economic ladder in a drug market that allowed dealers to charge a low minimum price. Crack cocaine use and distribution became popular in cities that were in a state of social and economic chaos such as New York, Los Angeles, and Atlanta. As a result of the low skill levels and minimal initial resource outlay required to sell crack, Systemic violence flourished as a growing army of young, enthusiastic inner-city crack sellers attempt to defend their economic investment. Once the drug became embedded in the particular communities, the economic environment that was best suited for its survival caused further social disintegration within that city. Sentencing Disparities In 1986, the U.S. Congress passed laws that created a 100-to-1 sentencing disparity for the possession or trafficking of crack when compared to penalties for trafficking of powder cocaine, which had been widely criticized as discriminatory against minorities, mostly African Americans, who were more likely to use crack than powder cocaine. 
This 100:1 ratio had been required under federal law since 1986. Persons convicted in federal court of possession of 5 grams of crack cocaine received a minimum mandatory sentence of 5 years in federal prison. On the other hand, possession of 500 grams of powder cocaine carries the same sentence. In 2010, the Fair Sentencing Act cut the sentencing disparity to 18:1. In the year 2000, the number of incarcerated African Americans had become 26 times the amount it had been in 1983. In 2012, 88% of imprisonments from crack cocaine were African American. Further, the data shows the discrepancy between lengths of sentences of crack cocaine and heroin. The majority of crack imprisonments are placed in the 10 to 20 year range, while the imprisonments related to heroin use or possession range from 5 to 10 years which has led many to question and analyze the role race plays in this disparity. Post-Epidemic Commentary In 2007, Memphis black writer Demico Booth, who spent 12 years in federal prison after being arrested for the first-time offense of selling crack cocaine at the age of 18, published the book, Why Are So Many Black Men in Prison? The book makes the same essential charges that are made in the better-known book published five years later by Michelle Alexander. Writer and lawyer Michelle Alexander's book The New Jim Crow, Mass incarceration in the age of colorblindness argues that punitive laws against drugs like crack cocaine adopted under the Reagan administration's war on drugs resulted in harsh social consequences, including large numbers of young black men imprisoned for long sentences, the exacerbation of drug crime despite a decrease in illegal drug use in the United States, increased police brutality against the black community resulting in injury and death for many black men, women, and children. According to Alexander, society turned into a racist criminal justice system to avoid exhibiting obvious racism. Since African Americans were the majority users of crack cocaine, it provided a platform for the government to create laws that were specific to crack. This was an effective way to imprison black people without having to do the same to white Americans. Thus, there was a discourse of African Americans and a perpetuated narrative about crack addiction that was villainous and problematic. The criminalizing of African American crack users was portrayed as dangerous and harmful to society. Alexander writes that felony drug convictions for crack cocaine fell disproportionately on young black men, who then lost access to voting, housing, and employment opportunities. These economic setbacks led to increased violent crime in poor black communities as families did what they had to do to survive. Alexander explains the process of someone who is caught with crack, first, the arrest and the court hearing that will result in jail or prison time. Second, the aftermath of permanent stigmas attached to someone who has done jail time for crack, like being marked a felon on their record. This affects job opportunity, housing opportunity, and creates obstacles for people who are left with little motivation to follow the law, making it more likely that they will be arrested again. Dark Alliance Series San Jose Mercury News journalist Gary Webb sparked national controversy with his 1996 Dark Alliance series which alleged that the influx of Nicaraguan cocaine started and significantly fueled the 1980s crack epidemic. Investigating the lives and connections of Los Angeles crack dealers Ricky Ross, Oscar Danilo Blandin, and Norwin Menezes, Webb alleged that profits from these crack sales were funneled to the CIA-supported Contras. The United States Department of Justice Office of the Inspector General rejected Webb's claim that there was a systematic effort by the CIA to protect the drug trafficking activities of the Contras. The DOJ-OIG reported, We found that Blandin and Menezes were plainly major drug traffickers who enriched themselves at the expense of countless drug users and the communities in which these drug users lived, just like other drug dealers of their magnitude. They also contributed some money to the Contra cause. But we did not find that their activities were the cause of the crack epidemic in Los Angeles, much less in the United States as a whole, or that they were a significant source of support for the Contras. Now, my favorite, 
I want to take a look at, war on drugs. Or should I say, war on colored folks. Also, please pay close attention to see who actually benefited from this still ongoing war. As part of the war on drugs, the US spends approximately $500 million per year on aid for Colombia, largely used to combat guerrilla groups such as FARC that are involved in the illegal drug trade. The war on drugs is a global campaign, led by the US federal government, of drug prohibition, military aid, and military intervention, with the aim of reducing the illegal drug trade in the United States. The initiative includes a set of drug policies that are intended to discourage the production, distribution, and consumption of psychoactive drugs that the participating governments and the UN have made illegal. The term was popularized by the media shortly after a press conference given on June 18, 1971, by President Richard Nixon the day after publication of a special message from President Nixon to the Congress on Drug Abuse Prevention and Control during which he declared drug abuse public enemy number one. That message to the Congress included text about devoting more federal resources to the prevention of new addicts, and the rehabilitation of those who are addicted, but that part did not receive the same public attention as the term war on drugs. However, two years prior to this, Nixon had formally declared a war on drugs that would be directed toward eradication, interdiction, and incarceration. Today, the Drug Policy Alliance, which advocates for an end to the war on drugs, estimates that the United States spends $51 billion annually on these initiatives. On May 13, 2009, Gil Kurlikowsk, the director of the Office of National Drug Control Policy, ONP, signaled that the Obama administration did not plan to significantly alter drug enforcement policy, but also that the administration would not use the term war on drugs, because Kurlikowsk considers the term to be counterproductive. Ant's view is that drug addiction is a disease that can be successfully prevented and treated, making drugs more available will make it harder to keep our communities healthy and safe. In June 2011, the Global Commission on Drug Policy released a critical report on the war on drugs, declaring, the global war on drugs has failed, with devastating consequences for individuals and societies around the world. Fifty years after the initiation of the UN Single Convention on Narcotic Drugs, and years after President Nixon launched the U.S. government's war on drugs, fundamental reforms in national and global drug control policies are urgently needed. The report was criticized by organizations that oppose a general legalization of drugs. Morphine was first isolated in 1805, and hypodermic syringes were first constructed in 1851. This was particularly significant during the American Civil War, when wounded soldiers were treated with morphine. This led to widespread morphine addiction among veterans of the war. Until 1912, products such as heroin were sold over-the-counter in a form of cough syrup. Doctors also prescribed heroin for irritable babies, bronchitis, insomnia, nervous conditions, hysteria, menstrual cramps, and vapors, leading to mass addiction. In addition, laudanum, an opioid, was a common part of the home medicine cabinet. In fiction, Conan Doyle portrayed the hero, Sherlock Holmes, as a cocaine addict. Citizens did not reach a consensus on dealing with the long-term effects of hard drug usage until towards the end of the 19th century. 20th century. The first U.S. law that restricted the distribution and use of certain drugs was the Harrison Narcotics Tax Act of 1914. The first local laws came as early as 1860. In 1919, the United States passed the 18th Amendment, prohibiting the sale, manufacture, and transportation of alcohol, with exceptions for religious and medical use. In 1920, the United States passed the National Prohibition Act, Volstead Act, enacted to carry out the provisions in law of the 18th Amendment. During World War I many soldiers were treated with morphine and became addicts. 
The Federal Bureau of Narcotics was established in the United States Department of the Treasury by an act of June 14, 1930. In 1933, the federal prohibition for alcohol was repealed by passage of the 21st Amendment. In 1935, President Franklin D. Roosevelt publicly supported the adoption of the Uniform State Narcotic Drug Act. The New York Times used the headline Roosevelt Asks Narcotic War Aid. In 1937, the Marijuana Tax Act of 1937 was passed. Several scholars have claimed that the goal was to destroy the hemp industry, largely as an effort of businessmen Andrew Mellon, Randolph Hearst, and the DuPont family. These scholars argue that with the invention of the decorticator, hemp became a very cheap substitute for the paper pulp that was used in the newspaper industry. These scholars believe that Hearst felt dubious, discuss that this was a threat to his extensive timber holdings. Mellon, United States Secretary of the Treasury and the wealthiest man in America, had invested heavily in the DuPont's new synthetic fiber, nylon, and considered dubious, discuss its success to depend on its replacement of the traditional resource, hemp. However, there were circumstances that contradict these claims. One reason for doubts about those claims is that the new decorticators did not perform fully satisfactorily in commercial production. Production of fiber from hemp, requiring harvest, transport, and processing, was a labor-intensive process. Technological developments decreased the labor required but not sufficiently to eliminate this disadvantage. On October 27, 1970, Congress passed the Comprehensive Drug Abuse Prevention and Control Act of 1970, which, among other things, categorized controlled substances based on their medicinal use and potential for addiction. In 1971, two congressmen released a report on the growing heroin epidemic among U.S. servicemen in Vietnam, 10-15% to of the servicemen were addicted to heroin, and President Nixon declared drug abuse to be public enemy number one. Although Nixon declared drug abuse to be public enemy number one in 1971, the policies that his administration implemented as part of the Comprehensive Drug Abuse Prevention and Control Act of 1970 were a continuation of drug prohibition policies in the U.S., which started in 1914. The Nixon campaign in 1968, and the Nixon White House after that, had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. John Ehrlichman, to Dan Baum for Harper's Magazine in 1994, about President Richard Nixon's war on drugs, declared in 1971. In 1973, the Drug Enforcement Administration was created to replace the Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs. The Nixon administration also repealed the federal two, 10-year mandatory minimum sentences for possession of marijuana and started federal demand reduction programs and drug treatment programs. Robert DuPont, the drugs are in the Nixon administration, stated it would be more accurate to say that Nixon ended, rather than launched, the war on drugs. DuPont also argued that it was the proponents of drug legalization that popularized the term war on drugs. The presidency of Ronald Reagan saw an expansion in the federal focus of preventing drug abuse and for prosecuting offenders. In the first term of the presidency Ronald Reagan signed the Comprehensive Crime Control Act of 1984, which expanded penalties towards possession of cannabis, established a federal system of mandatory minimum sentences, and established procedures for civil asset forfeiture. From 1980 to 1984 the federal annual budget of the FBI's drug enforcement units went from 8 million to 95 million. In 1982, 
Vice President George H.W. Bush and his aides began pushing for the involvement of the CIA and U.S. military in drug interdiction efforts. Mexican troops during a gun battle in Michoacan, 2007. Mexico's drug war claims nearly 50,000 lives each year. The Office of National Drug Control Policy, ONP, was originally established by the National Narcotics Leadership Act of 1988, which mandated a national anti-drug media campaign for youth, which would later become the National Youth Anti-Drug Media Campaign. The director of ONP is commonly known as the Drug Czar, and it was first implemented in 1989 under President George H.W. Bush, and raised to cabinet-level status by Bill Clinton in 1993. These activities were subsequently funded by the Treasury and General Government Appropriations Act of 1998. The Drug-Free Media Campaign Act of 1998 codified the campaign at 21 U.S.C. 1708. 21st Century An international group called the Global Commission on Drug Policy released a report on June 2, 2011, stating that the global war on drugs has failed. The commission was made up of 22 self-appointed members including a number of prominent international politicians and writers. U.S. Surgeon General Regina Benjamin also released the first-ever national prevention strategy. California Attorney General Kamala Harris visiting U.S. Mexico border to discuss strategies to combat drug cartels, 2011. On May 21, 2012, the U.S. government published an updated version of its drug policy. The director of ONP stated simultaneously that this policy is somewhat different from the war on drugs. The U.S. government sees the policy as a third-way approach to drug control, an approach that is based on the results of a huge investment in research from some of the world's preeminent scholars on disease of substance abuse. The policy does not see drug legalization as the silver bullet solution to drug control. It is not a policy where success is measured by the number of arrests made or prisons built. At the same meeting was a declaration signed by the representatives of Italy, the Russian Federation, Sweden, the United Kingdom and the United States in line with this, our approach must be a balanced one, combining effective enforcement to restrict the supply of drugs, with efforts to reduce demand and build recovery, supporting people to live a life free of addiction. In March 2016 the International Narcotics Control Board stated that the international drug control treaties do not mandate a war on drugs. United States Domestic Policy Arrests and Incarceration Operation Mallorca U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration, 2005. According to Human Rights Watch, the war on drugs caused soaring arrest rates that disproportionately targeted African Americans due to various factors. John Ehrlichman, an aide to Nixon, said that Nixon used the war on drugs to criminalize and disrupt black and hippie communities and their leaders. The present state of incarceration in the U.S. as a result of the war on drugs arrived in several stages. By 1971, different steps on drugs had been implemented for more than 50 years with only a very small increase of inmates per 100,000 citizens. During the first nine years after Nixon coined the expression war on drugs, statistics showed only a minor increase in the total number of imprisoned. After 1980, the situation began to change. In the 1980s, while the number of arrests for all crimes had risen by 28%, the number of arrests for drug offenses rose 126%. The result of increased demand was the development of privatization and the for-profit prison industry. The U.S. Department of Justice, reporting on the effects of state initiatives, has stated that, from 1990 through 2000, the increasing number of drug offenses accounted for 27% of the total growth among black inmates, 7% of the total growth among Hispanic inmates, and 15% of the growth among white inmates. In addition to prison or jail, the United States provides for the deportation of many non-citizens convicted of drug offenses. In 1994, 
The New England Journal of Medicine reported that the war on drugs resulted in the incarceration of one million Americans each year. In 2008, the Washington Post reported that of 1.5 million Americans arrested each year for drug offenses, half a million would be incarcerated. In addition, one in five black Americans would spend time behind bars due to drug laws. Federal and state policies also impose collateral consequences on those convicted of drug offenses, separate from fines and prison time, that are not applicable to other types of crime. For example, a number of states have enacted laws to suspend for six months the driver's license of anyone convicted of a drug offense, these laws were enacted in order to comply with a federal law known as the Solomon, Lautenberg Amendment, which threatened to penalize states that did not implement the policy. Other examples of collateral consequences for drug offenses, or for felony offenses in general, include loss of professional license, loss of ability to purchase a firearm, loss of eligibility for food stamps, loss of eligibility for federal student aid, loss of eligibility to live in public housing, loss of ability to vote, and deportation. Sentencing disparities. In 1986, the U.S. Congress passed laws that created a 100 to 1 sentencing disparity for the trafficking or possession of crack when compared to penalties for trafficking of powder cocaine, which had been widely criticized as discriminatory against minorities, mostly blacks, who were more likely to use crack than powder cocaine. This 100-1 ratio had been required under federal law since 1986. Persons convicted in federal court of possession of 5 grams of crack cocaine received a minimum mandatory sentence of 5 years in federal prison. On the other hand, possession of 500 grams of powder cocaine carries the same sentence. In 2010, the Fair Sentencing Act cut the sentencing disparity to 18,1. According to Human Rights Watch, crime statistics show that in the United States in 1999 compared to non-minorities, African Americans were far more likely to be arrested for drug crimes, and received much stiffer penalties and sentences. Statistics from 1998 show that there were wide racial disparities in arrests, prosecutions, sentencing and deaths. African American drug users made up for 35% of drug arrests, 55% of convictions, and 74% of people sent to prison for drug possession crimes. Nationwide African Americans were sent to state prisons for drug offenses 13 times more often than other races, even though they only supposedly comprised 13% of regular drug users. D.C. Mayor Marion Barry captured on a surveillance camera smoking crack cocaine during a sting operation by the FBI and D.C. police. Anti-drug legislation over time has also displayed an apparent racial bias. University of Minnesota professor and social justice author Michael Tonry writes, the war on drugs foreseeably and unnecessarily blighted the lives of hundreds and thousands of young disadvantaged black Americans and undermined decades of effort to improve the life chances of members of the urban black underclass. In 1968, President Lyndon B. Johnson decided that the government needed to make an effort to curtail the social unrest that blanketed the country at the time. He decided to focus his efforts on illegal drug use, an approach which was in line with expert opinion on the subject at the time. In the 1960s, it was believed that at least half of the crime in the U.S. was drug-related, and this number grew as high as 90% in the next decade. He created the Reorganization Plan of 1968 which merged the Bureau of Narcotics and the Bureau of Drug Abuse to form the Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs within the Department of Justice. The belief during this time about drug use was summarized by journalist Max Lerner in his work America as a Civilization, 1957. As a case in point we may take the known fact of the prevalence of reefer and dope addiction in Negro areas. This is essentially explained in terms of poverty, slum living, and broken families, yet it would be easy to show the lack of drug addiction among other ethnic groups where the same conditions apply. Richard Nixon became president in 1969, 
and did not back away from the anti-drug precedent set by Johnson. Nixon began orchestrating drug raids nationwide to improve his watchdog reputation. Lois B. DeFleur, a social historian who studied drug arrests during this period in Chicago, stated that, police administrators indicated they were making the kind of arrests the public wanted. Additionally, some of Nixon's newly created drug enforcement agencies would resort to illegal practices to make arrests as they tried to meet public demand for arrest numbers. From 1972 to 1973, the Office of Drug Abuse and Law Enforcement performed 6,000 drug arrests in 18 months, the majority of the arrested black. Total incarceration in the United States by year. The next two presidents, Gerald Ford and Jimmy Carter, responded with programs that were essentially a continuation of their predecessors. Shortly after Ronald Reagan became president in 1981, he delivered a speech on the topic. Reagan announced, We're taking down the surrender flag that has flown over so many drug efforts, we're running up a battle flag. Then, driven by the 1986 cocaine overdose of black basketball star Len Bias Dubious, discuss Reagan was able to pass the Anti-Drug Abuse Act through Congress. This legislation appropriated an additional $1.7 billion to fund the war on drugs. More importantly, it established 29 new, mandatory minimum sentences for drug offenses. In the entire history of the country up until that point, the legal system had only seen 55 minimum sentences in total. A major stipulation of the new sentencing rules included different mandatory minimums for powder and crack cocaine. At the time of the bill, there was public debate as to the difference in potency and effect of powder cocaine, generally used by whites, and crack cocaine, generally used by blacks, with many believing that crack was substantially more powerful and addictive. Crack and powder cocaine are closely related chemicals, crack being a smokable, free base form of powdered cocaine hydrochloride which produces a shorter, more intense high while using less of the drug. This method is more cost-effective, and therefore more prevalent on the inner-city streets, while powder cocaine remains more popular in white suburbia. The Reagan administration began shoring public opinion against crack, encouraging DIA official Robert Putnam to play up the harmful effects of the drug. Stories of crack whores and crack babies became commonplace, by 1986, time had declared crack the issue of the year. Riding the wave of public fervor, Reagan established much harsher sentencing for crack cocaine, handing down stiffer felony penalties for much smaller amounts of the drug. Reagan protege and former Vice President George H.W. Bush was next to occupy the Oval Office, and the drug policy under his watch held true to his political background. Bush maintained the hard line drawn by his predecessor and former boss, increasing narcotics regulation when the first national drug control strategy was issued by the Office of National Drug Control in 1989. The next three presidents, Clinton, Bush, and Obama, continued this trend, maintaining the war on drugs as they inherited it upon taking office. During this time of passivity by the federal government, it was the states that initiated controversial legislation in the war on drugs. Racial bias manifested itself in the states through such controversial policies as the stop-and-frisk police practices in New York City and the three-strikes felony laws began in California in 1994. In August 2010, President Obama signed the Fair Sentencing Act into law that dramatically reduced the 100-to-1 sentencing disparity between powder and crack cocaine, which disproportionately affected minorities. Commonly used illegal drugs. Commonly used illegal drugs include heroin, cocaine, methamphetamine, and marijuana. Heroin is an opiate that is highly addictive. If caught selling or possessing heroin, a perpetrator can be charged with a felony and face two, four years in prison and could be fined to a maximum of $20,000. Crystal meth is composed of methamphetamine hydrochloride. It is marketed as either a white powder or in a solid, rock, form. 
The possession of crystal meth can result in a punishment varying from a fine to a jail sentence. As with other drug crimes, sentencing length may increase depending on the amount of the drug found in the possession of the defendant. Cocaine possession is illegal across the U.S. The penalties for possession vary by state, or if charges are federal. Marijuana is the most popular illegal drug worldwide. The punishment for possession of it is less than for the possession of cocaine or heroin. In some U.S. states, the drug is legal. Approximately half of all adult Americans have tried marijuana. United States Foreign Interventions War on Drugs Operations in the War on Drugs Some scholars have claimed that the phrase War on Drugs is propaganda cloaking an extension of earlier military or paramilitary operations. Others have argued that large amounts of drug war foreign aid money, training, and equipment actually goes to fighting leftist insurgencies and is often provided to groups who themselves are involved in large-scale narco-trafficking, such as corrupt members of the Colombian military. War in Vietnam From 1963 to the end of the Vietnam War in 1975, marijuana usage became common among U.S. soldiers in non-combat situations. Some servicemen also used heroin. Many of the servicemen ended the heroin use after returning to the United States but came home addicted. In 1971, the U.S. military conducted a study of drug use among American servicemen and women. It found that daily usage rates for drugs on a worldwide basis were as low as 2%. However, in the spring of 1971, two congressmen released an alarming report alleging that 15% of the servicemen in Vietnam were addicted to heroin. Marijuana use was also common in Vietnam. Soldiers who used drugs had more disciplinary problems. The frequent drug use had become an issue for the commanders in Vietnam, in 1971 it was estimated that 30,000 servicemen were addicted to drugs, most of them to heroin. From 1971 on, therefore, returning servicemen were required to take a mandatory heroin test. Servicemen who tested positive upon returning from Vietnam were not allowed to return home until they had passed the test with a negative result. The program also offered a treatment for heroin addicts. Elliot Boren's article The U.S. Military Needs Its Speed published in Wired on February 10, 2003 reports. But the Defense Department, which distributed millions of amphetamine tablets to troops during World War II, Vietnam and the Gulf War, soldiers on, insisting that they are not only harmless but beneficial. In a news conference held in connection with Schmidt and Umbach's Article 32 hearing, Dr. Pete Dimitri, an Air Force physician and a pilot, claimed that the Air Force has used, dexedrine, safely for 60 years with no known speed-related mishaps. The need for speed, Dimitri added is a life-and-death issue for our military. Operation Intercept One of the first anti-drug efforts in the realm of foreign policy was President Nixon's Operation Intercept, announced in September 1969, targeted at reducing the amount of cannabis entering the United States from Mexico. The effort began with an intense inspection crackdown that resulted in an almost shutdown of cross-border traffic. Because the burden on border crossings was controversial in border states, the effort only lasted 20 days. Operation Just Cause The U.S. military invasion of Panama in 1989 On December 20, 1989, the United States invaded Panama as part of Operation Just Cause, which involved 25,000 American troops. General Manuel Noriega, head of the government of Panama, had been giving military assistance to Contra groups in Nicaragua at the request of the U.S. which, in exchange, tolerated his drug trafficking activities, which they had known about since the 1960s. When the Drug Enforcement Administration, DIA, tried to indict Noriega in 1971, the CIA prevented them from doing so. The CIA, which was then directed by future President George H. W. Bush, 
provided Noriega with hundreds of thousands of dollars per year as payment for his work in Latin America. When CIA pilot Eugene Hazenfus was shot down over Nicaragua by the Sandinistas, documents aboard the plane revealed many of the CIA's activities in Latin America, and the CIA's connections with Noriega became a public relations liability for the U.S. government, which finally allowed the DIA to indict him for drug trafficking, after decades of tolerating his drug operations. Operation Just Cause, whose purpose was to capture Noriega and overthrow his government, Noriega found temporary asylum in the papal nuncio, and surrendered to U.S. soldiers on January 3, 1990. He was sentenced by a court in Miami to 45 years in prison. Plan Colombia United States involvement in Colombia Part of the Colombian armed conflict As part of its Plan Colombia program, the United States government currently provides hundreds of millions of dollars per year of military aid, training, and equipment to Colombia, to fight left-wing guerrillas such as the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, FARC-EP, which has been accused of being involved in drug trafficking. Private U.S. corporations have signed contracts to carry out anti-drug activities as part of Plan Colombia. DynCorp, the largest private company involved, was among those contracted by the State Department, while others signed contracts with the Defense Department. Colombian military personnel have received extensive counterinsurgency training from U.S. military and law enforcement agencies, including the School of Americas, SOA. Author Grace Livingstone has stated that more Colombian SOA graduates have been implicated in human rights abuses than currently known SOA graduates from any other country. All of the commanders of the brigades highlighted in a 2001 Human Rights Watch report on Colombia were graduates of the SOA, including the 3 Brigade in Valle del Cauca, where the 2001 Alto Naya massacre occurred. Us trained officers have been accused of being directly or indirectly involved in many atrocities during the 1990s, including the massacre of Trujillo and the 1997 Maparipan massacre. In 2000, the Clinton administration initially waived all but one of the human rights conditions attached to Plan Colombia, considering such aid as crucial to national security at the time. The efforts of U.S. and Colombian governments have been criticized for focusing on fighting leftist guerrillas in southern regions without applying enough pressure on right-wing paramilitaries and continuing drug smuggling operations in the north of the country. Human Rights Watch, congressional committees and other entities have documented the existence of connections between members of the Colombian military and the AUC, which the U.S. government has listed as a terrorist group, and that Colombian military personnel have committed human rights abuses which would make them ineligible for U.S. aid under current laws. In 2010, the Washington Office on Latin America concluded that both Plan Colombia and the Colombian government's security strategy came at a high cost in lives and resources, only did part of the job, are yielding diminishing returns and have left important institutions weaker. A 2014 report by the RAND Corporation, which was issued to analyze viable strategies for the Mexican drug war considering successes experienced in Colombia, noted. Between 1999 and 2002, the United States gave Colombia $2.04 billion in aid, 81% of which was for military purposes, placing Colombia just below Israel and Egypt among the largest recipients of U.S. military assistance. Colombia increased its defense spending from 3.2% of gross domestic product, GDP, in 2000 to 4.19% in 2005. Overall, the results were extremely positive. Greater spending on infrastructure and social programs helped the Colombian government increase its political legitimacy, while improved security forces were better able to consolidate control over large swaths of the country previously overrun by insurgents and drug cartels. It also notes that, Plan Colombia has been widely hailed as a success, and some analysts believe that, by 2010, Colombian security forces had finally gained the upper hand once and for all. 
Mexico is scheduled to receive 1.6 billion US dollars in equipment and strategic support from the United States through the Merida Initiative. Merida Initiative. The Merida Initiative is a security cooperation between the United States and the government of Mexico and the countries of Central America. It was approved on June 30, 2008, and its stated aim is combating the threats of drug trafficking and transnational crime. The Merida Initiative appropriated $1.4 billion in a three-year commitment to the Mexican government for military and law enforcement training and equipment, as well as technical advice and training to strengthen the national justice systems. The Merida Initiative targeted many very important government officials, but it failed to address the thousands of Central Americans who had to flee their countries due to the danger they faced every day because of the war on drugs. There is still not any type of plan that addresses these people. No weapons are included in the plan. Aerial Herbicide Application The United States regularly sponsors the spraying of large amounts of herbicides such as glyphosate over the jungles of Central and South America as part of its drug eradication programs. Environmental consequences resulting from aerial fumigation have been criticized as detrimental to some of the world's most fragile ecosystems, the same aerial fumigation practices are further credited with causing health problems in local populations. U.S. Operations in Honduras In 2012, the U.S. sent DIA agents to Honduras to assist security forces in counter-narcotics operations. Honduras has been a major stop for drug traffickers, who use small planes and landing strips hidden throughout the country to transport drugs. The U.S. government made agreements with several Latin American countries to share intelligence and resources to counter the drug trade. DIA agents, working with other U.S. agencies such as the State Department, the CBP, and Joint Task Force Bravo, assisted Honduras troops in conducting raids on traffickers' sites of operation. Public Support and Opposition An American domestic government propaganda poster circa 2000 concerning cannabis in the United States. Several critics have compared the wholesale incarceration of the dissenting minority of drug users to the wholesale incarceration of other minorities in history. Psychiatrist Thomas Zass, for example, wrote in 1997 over the past 30 years, we have replaced the medical political persecution of illegal sex users, perverts and psychopaths, with the even more ferocious medical-political persecution of illegal drug users. United States The war on drugs has been a highly contentious issue since its inception. A poll on October 2, 2008, found that three in four Americans believed that the war on drugs was failing. In 2014, a Pew Research Center poll found more than six in ten Americans state that state governments moving away from mandatory prison terms for drug law violations is a good thing, while three out of ten Americans say these policy changes are a bad thing. This is a substantial shift from the same poll question since 2001. In 2014 a Pew Research Center poll found that 67% of Americans feel that a movement towards treatment for drugs like cocaine and heroin is better versus the 26% who feel that prosecution is the better route. In 2018, a Rasmussen Report poll found that less than 10% of Americans think that the war on drugs is being won and that 75% found that Americans believe that America is not winning the war on drugs. Mexico Mexican citizens, unlike American citizens, support the current measures their government were taking against drug cartels in the war on drugs. A Pew Research Center poll in 2010 found that 80% supported the current use of the army in the war on drugs to combat drug traffickers with about 55% saying that they have been making progress in the war. A year later in 2011 a Pew Research Center poll uncovered that 71% of Mexicans find that illegal drugs are a very big problem in their country. 77% of Mexicans also found that drug cartels and the violence associated with them are as well a big challenge for Mexico.
The poll also found that the percentages believing that illegal drugs and violence related to the cartel were higher in the north with 87% for illegal drug use and 94% cartel-related violence being a problem. This compared to the other locations, South Mexico City and the greater area of Mexico City, and Central Mexico which are all about 18% or lower than the north on illegal drug use being a problem for the country. These perspective areas are also lower than the north by 19% or more on the issue of drug cartel-related violence being an issue for the country. In 2013 a Pew Research Center poll found that 74% of Mexican citizens would support the training of their police and military, the poll also found that another 55% would support the supplying of weapons and financial aid. Though the poll indicates a support of U.S. aid, 59% were against troops on the ground by the U.S. military. Also in 2013 Pew Research Center found in a poll that 56% of Mexican citizens believe that the United States and Mexico are both to blame for drug violence in Mexico. In that same poll 20% believe that the United States is solely to blame and 17% believe that Mexico is solely to blame. Latin American Leaders At a meeting in Guatemala in 2012, three former presidents from Guatemala, Mexico and Colombia said that the war on drugs had failed and that they would propose a discussion on alternatives, including decriminalization, at the summit of the Americas in April of that year. Guatemalan President Otto Pérez Molina said that the war on drugs was exacting too high a price on the lives of Central Americans and that it was time to end the taboo on discussing decriminalization. At the summit, the government of Colombia pushed for the most far-reaching change to drugs policy since the war on narcotics was declared by Nixon four decades prior, citing the catastrophic effects it had had in Colombia. Socio-economic effects Creation of a permanent underclass Circa 1 million people are incarcerated every year in the United States for drug law violations. Penalties for drug crimes among American youth almost always involve permanent or semi-permanent removal from opportunities for education, strip them of voting rights, and later involve creation of criminal records which make employment more difficult. Thus, some authors maintain that the war on drugs has resulted in the creation of a permanent underclass of people who have few educational or job opportunities, often as a result of being punished for drug offenses which in turn have resulted from attempts to earn a living in spite of having no education or job opportunities. Costs to taxpayers According to a 2008 study published by Harvard economist Jeffrey A. Myron, the annual savings on enforcement and incarceration costs from the legalization of drugs would amount to roughly $41.3 billion, with $25.7 billion being saved among the states and over $15.6 billion accrued for the federal government. Myron further estimated at least $46.7 billion in tax revenue based on rates comparable to those on tobacco and alcohol, $8.7 billion from marijuana, $32.6 billion from cocaine and heroin, and $5.4 billion from other drugs. Low taxation in Central American countries has been credited with weakening the region's response in dealing with drug traffickers. Many cartels, especially Los Zetas have taken advantage of the limited resources of these nations. 2010 tax revenue in El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras, composed just 13.53% of GDP. As a comparison, in Chile and the US, taxes were 18.6% and 26.9% of GDP respectively. However, direct taxes on income are very hard to enforce and in some cases tax evasion is seen as a national pastime. Impact on growers The status of coca and coca growers has become an intense political issue in several countries, including Colombia and particularly Bolivia, where the president, Evo Morales, a former coca growers union leader, has promised to legalize the traditional cultivation and use of coca. Indeed, Legalization efforts have yielded some successes under the Morales administration when combined with aggressive and targeted eradication efforts. 
the country saw a 12 to 13 percent decline in coca cultivation in 2011 under Morales, who has used coca growers federations to ensure compliance with the law rather than providing a primary role for security forces. The coca eradication policy has been criticized for its negative impact on the livelihood of coca growers in South America. In many areas of South America the coca leaf has traditionally been chewed and used in tea and for religious, medicinal, and nutritional purposes by locals. For this reason many insist that the illegality of traditional coca cultivation is unjust. In many areas the US government and military has forced the eradication of coca without providing for any meaningful alternative crop for farmers, and has additionally destroyed many of their food or market crops, leaving them starving and destitute. Allegations of official involvement in drug trafficking the CIA, DIA, State Department, and several other U.S. government agencies have been alleged to have relations with various groups which are involved in drug trafficking. CIA and Contra Cocaine Trafficking Senator John Kerry's 1988 U.S. Senate Committee on Foreign Relations report on Contra drug links concludes that members of the U.S. State Department who provided support for the Contras are involved in drug trafficking, and elements of the Contras themselves knowingly receive financial and material assistance from drug traffickers. The report further states that the Contra drug links include, payments to drug traffickers by the U.S. State Department of Funds authorized by the Congress for humanitarian assistance to the Contras, in some cases after the traffickers had been indicted by federal law enforcement agencies on drug charges, in others while traffickers were under active investigation by these same agencies. In 1996, journalist Gary Webb published reports in the San Jose Mercury News, and later in his book Dark Alliance, claiming that, for the better part of a decade, a San Francisco Bay Area drug ring sold tons of cocaine to the Crips and Blood Street gangs of Los Angeles and funneled millions in drug profits to a Latin American guerrilla army run by the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency. This drug ring opened the first pipeline between Colombia's cocaine cartels and the black neighborhoods of Los Angeles and, as a result, the cocaine that flooded in helped spark a crack explosion in urban America. Webb's premise regarding the U.S. government connection was initially attacked at the time by the media. The series remains controversial. The series resulted in three federal investigations, i.e. by the CIA, Department of Justice, and the House Intelligence Committee, into the claims of Dark Alliance. The reports rejected the series' main claims but were critical of some CIA and law enforcement actions. The CIA report found no evidence that any past or present employee of CIA, or anyone acting on behalf of CIA, had any direct or indirect dealing with Ross, Blandon, or Menezes or that any of the other figures mentioned in Dark Alliance were ever employed by or associated with or contacted by the agency. The Department of Justice report stated that we did not find that he Blandon had any ties to the CIA, that the CIA intervened in his case in any way, or that any connections to the Contras affected his treatment. The House Committee report examined the support that Menezes and Blandon gave to the local Contra organization in San Francisco and the Contras in general, the report concluded that it was not sufficient to finance the organization and did not consist of millions, contrary to the claims of the Dark Alliance series. This support was not directed by anyone within the Contra movement who had an association with the CIA, and the committee found no evidence that the CIA or the intelligence community was aware of these individual support. Heroin trafficking operations involving the CIA, U.S. Navy, and Sicilian Mafia. According to Rodney Campbell, an editorial assistant to Nelson Rockefeller, during World War II, the United States Navy, concerned that strikes and labor disputes in U.S. eastern shipping ports would disrupt wartime logistics, released the mobster Lucky Luciano from prison, and collaborated with him to help the Mafia take control of those ports. Labor union members were terrorized and murdered by Mafia members as a means of preventing labor unrest and ensuring smooth shipping of supplies to Europe. According to Alexander Coburn and Jeffrey St. Clair, in order to prevent Communist Party members from being elected in Italy following World War II, 
the CIA worked closely with the Sicilian Mafia, protecting them and assisting in their worldwide heroin smuggling operations. The Mafia was in conflict with leftist groups and was involved in assassinating, torturing, and beating leftist political organizers. Efficacy of the United States' War on Drugs USS Rance, FFG-46, attempts to put out a fire set by drug smugglers trying to escape and destroy evidence. External Video Video Icon A Conversation with President Obama and David Simon, The Wire Creator, Discussing the Wire and the War on Drugs, The White House. In 1986, the U.S. Defense Department funded a two-year study by the RAND Corporation, which found that the use of the armed forces to interdict drugs coming into the United States would have little or no effect on cocaine traffic and might, in fact, raise the profits of cocaine cartels and manufacturers. The 175-page study, Sealing the Borders, the Effects of Increased Military Participation in Drug Interdiction, was prepared by seven researchers, mathematicians, and economists at the National Defense Research Institute, a branch of the RAND, and was released in 1988. The study noted that seven prior studies in the past nine years, including one by the Center for Naval Research and the Office of Technology Assessment, had come to similar conclusions. Interdiction efforts, using current armed forces resources, would have almost no effect on cocaine importation into the United States, the report concluded. During the early to mid-1990s, the Clinton administration ordered and funded a major cocaine policy study, again by RAND. The RAND Drug Policy Research Center study concluded that $3 billion should be switched from federal and local law enforcement to treatment. The report said that treatment is the cheapest way to cut drug use, stating that drug treatment is 23 times more effective than the supply-side war on drugs. The National Research Council Committee on Data and Research for Policy on Illegal Drugs published its findings in 2001 on the efficacy of the drug war. The NRC committee found that existing studies on efforts to address drug usage and smuggling, from U.S. military operations to eradicate coca fields in Colombia, to domestic drug treatment centers, have all been inconclusive, if the programs have been evaluated at all, the existing drug use monitoring systems are strikingly inadequate to support the full range of policy decisions that the nation must make. It is unconscionable for this country to continue to carry out a public policy of this magnitude and cost without any way of knowing whether and to what extent it is having the desired effect. The study, though not ignored by the press, was ignored by top-level policymakers, leading committee chair Charles Mansky to conclude, as one observer notes, that the drug war has no interest in its own results. In mid-1995, the U.S. government tried to reduce the supply of methamphetamine precursors to disrupt the market of this drug. According to a 2009 study, this effort was successful, but its effects were largely temporary. During alcohol prohibition, the period from 1920 to 1933, alcohol use initially fell but began to increase as early as 1922. It has been extrapolated that even if prohibition had not been repealed in 1933, alcohol consumption would have quickly surpassed pre-prohibition levels. One argument against the war on drugs is that it uses similar measures as prohibition and is no more effective. In the six years from 2000 to 2006, the U.S. spent $4.7 billion on Plan Colombia, an effort to eradicate coca production in Colombia. The main result of this effort was to shift coca production into more remote areas and force other forms of adaptation. The overall acreage cultivated for coca in Colombia at the end of the six years was found to be the same, after the U.S. Drug Czar's office announced a change in measuring methodology in 2005 and included new areas in its surveys. Cultivation in the neighboring countries of Peru and Bolivia increased, some would describe this effect like squeezing a balloon. Richard Davenport Hines, in his book The Pursuit of Oblivion, 
criticized the efficacy of the war on drugs by pointing out that 10 to 15 percent of illicit heroin and 30 percent of illicit cocaine is intercepted. Drug traffickers have gross profit margins of up to 300 percent. At least 75 percent of illicit drug shipments would have to be intercepted before the traffickers' profits were hurt. Alberto Fujimori, president of Peru from 1990 to 2000, described U.S. foreign drug policy as failed on grounds that for 10 years, there has been a considerable sum invested by the Peruvian government and another sum on the part of the American government, and this has not led to a reduction in the supply of coca leaf offered for sale. Rather, in the 10 years from 1980 to 1990, it grew tenfold. At least 500 economists, including Nobel laureates Milton Friedman, George Okerloff, and Vernon L. Smith, have noted that reducing the supply of marijuana without reducing the demand causes the price, and hence the profits of marijuana sellers, to go up, according to the laws of supply and demand. The increased profits encourage the producers to produce more drugs despite the risks, providing a theoretical explanation for why attacks on drug supply have failed to have any lasting effect. The aforementioned economists published an open letter to President George W. Bush stating we urge, the country to commence an open and honest debate about marijuana prohibition. At a minimum, this debate will force advocates of current policy to show that prohibition has benefits sufficient to justify the cost to taxpayers, foregone tax revenues and numerous ancillary consequences that result from marijuana prohibition. U.S. yearly overdose deaths, and the drugs involved. There were 70,200 drug overdose deaths overall in 2017 in the USA. The declaration from the World Forum Against Drugs, 2008 state that a balanced policy of drug abuse prevention, education, treatment, law enforcement, research, and supply reduction provides the most effective platform to reduce drug abuse and its associated harms and call on governments to consider demand reduction as one of their first priorities in the fight against drug abuse. Despite over $7 billion spent annually towards arresting and prosecuting nearly 800,000 people across the country for marijuana offenses in 2005 citation needed, FBI Uniform Crime Reports, the federally funded Monitoring the Future survey reports about 85% of high school seniors find marijuana easy to obtain. That figure has remained virtually unchanged since 1975, never dropping below 82.7% in three decades of national surveys. The Drug Enforcement Administration states that the number of users of marijuana in the U.S. declined between 2000 and 2005 even with many states passing new medical marijuana laws making access easier, though usage rates remain higher than they were in the 1990s according to the National Survey on Drug Use and Health. ONT stated in April 2011 that there has been a 46% drop in cocaine use among young adults over the past five years, and a 65% drop in the rate of people testing positive for cocaine in the workplace since 2006. At the same time, a 2007 study found that up to 35% of college undergraduates used stimulants not prescribed to them. A 2013 study found that prices of heroin, cocaine, and cannabis had decreased from 1990 to 2007, but the purity of these drugs had increased during the same time. According to data collected by the Federal Bureau of Prisons 45.3% of all criminal charges were drug-related and 25.5% of sentences for all charges last 5 to 10 years. Furthermore, non-whites make up 41.4% of the federal prison system's population and over half are under the age of 40. The Bureau of Justice Statistics contends that over 80% of all drug-related charges are for possession rather than the sale or manufacture of drugs. In 2015 the U.S. government spent over $25 billion on supply reduction, while allocating only $11 billion for demand reduction. Supply reduction includes, interdiction, eradication, and law enforcement, demand reduction includes, education, prevention, and treatment. The war on drugs is often called a policy failure. 
Legality The legality of the war on drugs has been challenged on four main grounds in the U.S. It is argued that drug prohibition, as presently implemented, violates the substantive due process doctrine in that its benefits do not justify the encroachments on rights that are supposed to be guaranteed by the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments to the U.S. Constitution. On July 27, 2011, U.S. District Judge Mary S. Scriven ruled that Florida's legislation purporting to eliminate intent as an element of the crime of drug possession was unconstitutional. Commentators explained the ruling in terms of due process. Freedom of religious conscience legally allows some, for example, members of the Native American Church, to use peyote with definite spiritual or religious motives. The sacramental use of dimethyltryptamine in the form of ayahuasca is also allowed for members of Uniao du Vegetal. The Free Exercise Clause of the First Amendment implies no requirement for someone to be affiliated to an official church, therefore leaving some ambiguity. It has been argued that the Commerce Clause means that the power to regulate drug use should be state law not federal law. However, Supreme Court rulings go against this argument because production and consumption in one locality will change the price in another locality because it affects the overall supply and demand for the product and interstate price in a globalized, market economy. The inequity of prosecuting the war on certain drugs but not alcohol or tobacco has also been called into question. Alternatives? Several authors believe that the United States federal and state governments have chosen wrong methods for combating the distribution of illicit substances. Aggressive, heavy-handed enforcement funnels individuals through courts and prisons, instead of treating the cause of the addiction, the focus of government efforts has been on punishment. By making drugs illegal rather than regulating them, the war on drugs creates a highly profitable black market. Jefferson Fish has edited scholarly collections of articles offering a wide variety of public health-based and rights-based alternative drug policies. In the year 2000, the United States drug control budget reached $18.4 billion, nearly half of which was spent financing law enforcement while only one-sixth was spent on treatment. In the year 2003, 53% of the requested drug control budget was for enforcement, 29% for treatment, and 18% for prevention. The state of New York, in particular, designated 17% of its budget towards substance abuse-related spending. Of that, a mere 1% was put towards prevention, treatment, and research. In a survey taken by Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, SAMHSA, it was found that substance abusers that remain in treatment longer are less likely to resume their former drug habits. Of the people that were studied, 66% were cocaine users. After experiencing long-term inpatient treatment, only 22% returned to the use of cocaine. Treatment had reduced the number of cocaine abusers by two-thirds. By spending the majority of its money on law enforcement, the federal government had underestimated the true value of drug treatment facilities and their benefit towards reducing the number of addicts in the U.S. In 2004 the federal government issued the National Drug Control Strategy. It supported programs designed to expand treatment options, enhance treatment delivery, and improve treatment outcomes. For example, the strategy provided SAMHSA with a $100.6 million grant to put towards their Access to Recovery ATR, initiative. ATR is a program that provides vouchers to addicts to provide them with the means to acquire clinical treatment or recovery support. The project's goals are to expand capacity, support client choice, and increase the array of faith-based and community-based providers for clinical treatment and recovery support services. The ATR program will also provide a more flexible array of services based on the individual's treatment needs. The 2004 strategy additionally declared a significant $32 million raise in the drug courts program, which provides drug offenders with alternatives to incarceration. As a substitute for imprisonment, 
Drug courts identify substance abusing offenders and place them under strict court monitoring and community supervision, as well as provide them with long-term treatment services. According to a report issued by the National Drug Court Institute, drug courts have a wide array of benefits, with only 16.4% of the nation's drug court graduates re-arrested and charged with a felony within one year of completing the program, versus the 44.1% of released prisoners who end up back in prison within one year. Additionally, enrolling an addict in a drug court program costs much less than incarcerating one in prison 186 according to the Bureau of Prisons, the fee to cover the average cost of incarceration for federal inmates in 2006 was $24,440. The annual cost of receiving treatment in a drug court program ranges from $900 to $3,500. Drug courts in New York State alone saved $2.54 million in incarceration costs. Describing the failure of the war on drugs, New York Times columnist Eduardo Porter noted. Jeffrey Myron, an economist at Harvard who studies drug policy closely, has suggested that legalizing all illicit drugs would produce net benefits to the United States of some $65 billion a year, mostly by cutting public spending on enforcement as well as through reduced crime and corruption. A study by analysts at the Rand Corporation, a California research organization, suggested that if marijuana were legalized in California and the drugs spilled from there to other states, Mexican drug cartels would lose about a fifth of their annual income of some $6.5 billion from illegal exports to the United States. Many believe that the war on drugs has been costly and ineffective largely because inadequate emphasis is placed on treatment of addiction. The United States leads the world in both recreational drug usage and incarceration rates. 70% of men arrested in metropolitan areas test positive for an illicit substance, and 54% of all men incarcerated will be repeat offenders. <laughs> what y'all think about that? The war on drugs. Man, look at you. Now look at like I tell y'all, I'm going to bring some more talk here. On this war on drugs. There's a couple more things that I'm fascinated about. I want to take a look at. I want to take a look at just a little quick one thing here. I want to take a look at what I've been observing how black folks destroy their own community by selling this poisoning to each other. And it was all a plan. As you can as you heard, it was all a plan. But again, when you take jobs out of the community, education out of the community, and you throw poison in and you throw guns in. This is what you get 10, 20, 30 years later. This is what you get. But the thing about it is that they knew this all the time. They just didn't know how far it was going to go. But it was, the amazing thing about it is, to me, is as how blacks continue to sell this poison to they sell to each other, to their friend's mama, to their friend's sister, they to, to little kids. All talking about getting the bag and making money. It's so it's so horrible to me. But like I say again, I'm not gonna get off into no big rant. I'm gonna I'm gonna venture down that road on my own little side talk on the war on drugs on just my observation. But look at here. If y'all ever get a chance to get your hands on one of these, one of these MJ12 or Louisiana, I want y'all to go to your local cigar spot first. Local cigar spot first. If your local cigar spot ain't got it. Then you go online to your CIs or your hosts. Got to get them both for your humidor. But shop local first. That's what I do. I shop local first. <laughs> All right. Now, like I tell y'all always in life, y'all take care of everybody out there. But more importantly, y'all take care of yourself first. All right now. Hey there, Ken folk. This is Uncle Maduro. Look, if y'all been enjoying these little pot talks here I be giving, then want y'all consider buying old Uncle Maduro a cigar. 
you can go right there to my little wave page there and donate. Donate to Uncle Maduro just for the price of one cigar. And man, let me tell you, I keep on doing these little talks here that I be giving. So now that I done harassing y'all like a seagull at the beach, let's get back to the talk. All right now. <laughs> 